Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. I'm not the one who's so far away When I feel the snake bite and tear my veins Never did I wanna be here again And I don't remember why I came
In last week's show, I took you on a guided tour through the elastic skin of the veil and into the plane of power also known as the etheric plane. We examined a bit of the topography and energetics of the etheric plane, as well as some of the inhabitants that you uh, may encounter there. We also saw how thought energy is projected through this plane into the next finer plane and, uh, and what happens to it if the intentions are not sufficiently powered. As I promised in my last show, I am now going to take you through the veil once again to the finer vibrations at the opposite end of the veil, which lead to what is known as the astral plane. One thing you should keep in mind as we venture through these realms is that we are not actually moving through space or traveling anywhere. We are simply altering our perceptions to synchronize with a higher frequency of awareness. This is done through the manipulation of the assemblage point found within our energy bodies, which surrounds the physical body. As we shift the frequency of consciousness to each ascending level, we find that we have an energy body of the same corresponding frequency of vibration of the plane we are trying to reach. This principle might be easier to visualize if you picture our physical bodies as an energetic shell made up of the same material we find in our physical world. However, we are more than our physical world bodies, and upon closer examination, we would see a finer, faster-moving energy in and around our physical bodies made up of the same material we encountered in our journey into the etheric plane. An even closer examination would reveal yet another even finer and faster moving energy within and around our physical and etheric bodies, which is the same vibrations and viscosity of the next distinct vibrational level beyond, um, beyond the etheric, which is called the astral plane. This superimposing of finer and finer and faster and faster moving energy structures continue to at least another four or five levels, each containing a corresponding energy body for each plane of existence. Within these distinct planes are also subfrequencies of at least seven major segregations each being a separate and distinct location or world within, uh, with different topography and, and qualities for each of these subplanes. There also exist corresponding energy bodies, all merged with our other bodies, all the way down to the slowest of vibrations, the physical body. This entourage of your bodies makes you who you are, which is far more than your physical body. Collectively, they are direct expressions of your true energy body, which we sometimes call the soul. Your consciousness exists in each of these energy bodies, but your awareness within each seat of consciousness is generally limited to one body at a time, although this is not always the case. Uh, this brings us back to the concept 
of venturing into these other dimensions or planes, and we can now see the movement to these places is not true movement through space, but movement in the frequency of consciousness to that of each corresponding body of each plane we want to visit. This sounds more complicated than it really is, so, so don't let the science uh, scare you away. This can also be demonstrated mathematically, but that might scare you away, so we are not going there tonight. So, if I gave you what is known in my Toltec shamanic lineage as the Nawal's blow to shift your assemblage point of awareness to a higher energy body, you would begin to perceive the energies and topography of that world, just as we did in the last show where I took you into the etheric plane. In this show, I am going to continue the terror by moving your assemblage points to tune in yet a higher frequency as we move to the upper limits of the etheric plane, or veil between the worlds, as it uh, is also known. The first thing you would notice is that most of the thought balls or thought forms of energy traveling around you are coming from up ahead, and very few are coming from the physical world we left behind. This is because most of the thought energy balls of living humans have dissipated and been absorbed by the etheric plane at this level. It takes a skilled or very focused individual to send thoughts this far. The next stop ahead is the upper elastic barrier of the veil heading into the lower vibrations of the astral plane. From this vantage point, you are somewhat safe from what lies just a frequency shift away through the elastic skin of the veil. Remember I said that the astral plane is segregated into seven subplanes, and the first two are the scariest and most dangerous of all the planes in the multiverse. It is in these two lower planes that all the lower emotions like hate, fear, jealousy, greed, and many others are trapped. It is also the place where our inner demons dwell as expressions of all the bad things that we do to each other on the physical plane. In this place, thoughts have power, and every twisted mind in the history of humanity has contributed something to this dark place of thought forms and emotions. It is an ugly place, and many of the creatures will try to trap your awareness and, uh, and feed off your fear that they can easily induce. Many of your worst nightmares are spawned from this place, and many of the insane individuals, both living and dead, often get trapped here. The bad news is, you must travel through these two realms to get to the higher ones when projecting your consciousness from your physical body. The good news is that there is no reason to stop in these two lower realms. And with just a little bit of practice, you can shoot right through them so fast that you will not even be aware you were there. My first out-of-body experience unfortunately catapulted me right into the lower planes. It happened when I was a wee lad of six. I remember it uh, today with every single detail sharp in my mind as though it happened just yesterday. It was a summer's eve in Seal Beach, California where I lived and 
As I changed into my pajamas getting ready for bed, I had no idea that I was about to enter a world that would intrigue me forever with its mystical allure while at the same time filling me with more terror than a lad of six could comprehend. I climbed into bed and pulled up the covers and began drifting into the twilight slumber. Suddenly I was wide awake and I was floating above my bed. I began moving slowly through the room. I remember rolling over in the air into a position similar to body surfing in the ocean, which was one of my favorite pastimes. I was um, floating toward a large glass window in my room, which led to the backyard and garage. And I began to panic as I approached the window. Because you have to remember, I have absolutely no preconceived ideas about what was happening to me. And as far as I knew, I was about to crash through the glass and get all cut up. However, when I reached the glass, I passed right through it, just like a ghost would. Suddenly, fear hit me. Was I dead? I had never thought about death before that moment. Then, before fear overtook me, I suddenly realized I was flying just like Superman. Whenever I wanted to go, I just willed it so, and off I went, but uh, at a much uh, slower pace than I I thought I should be flying. All my fears left me as I uh, played with uh, my totally awesome new ability until they appeared. I heard them first, like a guttural growling in the distance. They grew louder by the second. It was a ferocious kind of chomping, and the sight of these wolfman-type beasts with red eyes coming at me faster than I seemed to be able to get away that really pushed me over the edge of panic. It was then that I discovered one of the most curious things about out-of-body experiences, although I would not realize it uh, for many years. I found that fear is what seemed to feed these horrible creatures, And this fear seemed to drain the life force right out of me to the point where I began to lose my ability to fly, landing softly on the ground as these creatures closed in on me. I would try to run and and take off in the air again, but it seemed that uh, I was running through water. There was a lot of friction. Just about the time that I thought all was lost, I seemed to give in to my fate and suddenly all my fears vanished. And at that same time, all my power and energy came back to me. I took off running as fast as I could for the back door of my house. I guess I figured that I was much better at running than I was at flying stuff. The last thing I remember is stepping barefoot on a sharp sharp rock just before I reached the door. The next thing I knew, I was wide awake in bed. I threw the covers over my head and uh, didn't come back out until daylight filled my room. Funny thing is that my foot was sore, like from a bruise, for days afterwards, and when I looked outside the next day, I found the same sharp rock in the same place I'd stepped on it the night before, in what uh, I thought at the time was a dream, or rather a nightmare. This experience was so terrifying that it would be years before I could consciously repeat that type of -of out-of-body excursion again. In the coming weeks 
as I teach you how to shift your awareness and move into these other realms. I'm going to make sure that you do not fall prey to these lower realms by giving you mental tools that will take you non-stop through the lower astral to wherever you want to go. For now, I'm going to give you a little exercise to practice and perfect that will lead the way to full-blown shifts of awareness into other realities. This is a technique from my Toltec shamanic lineage called not doing. I am basically going to teach you a different way of seeing by getting you to focus all your awareness on an object that does not exist. If you are listening to this show while driving, please do not attempt this until you get to your destination. Okay, let's start by holding your arms extended out in front of you and turn your hands with your thumbs extended upwards like you were giving the two thumbs up to someone. Now move them about six to eight inches apart and begin to cross your eyes so that the image of each thumb moves to the center empty space between your thumbs. You may now see four thumbs by doing this, but what you want to do is to bring them to meet and overlap in the center by controlling how much you cross your eyes. Do not worry about crossing your eyes. Contrary to what your mother may have told you, they will not stay that way. Once you have the two thumbs overlapped in the center, you will see three thumbs. The two real thumbs on each side and the single thumb in the center made up of the image of the two real thumbs. Now focus on the center thumb. Look how the details begin to come into focus as you hold it steady with your eyes. Suddenly, it becomes more detailed and sharper in both color and clarity than either of the two real thumbs. The real thumbs will begin to fade from view as you hold this vision in your mind. And uh, your mind will only acknowledge the center thumb combined from the two images of the real thumbs. And your awareness will follow a total awareness in great detail of an object that does not exist. This is your first exercise in learning the principles of shifting your frequency of awareness by not doing. Practice this a little each day, but not too often, or you will end up with eye strain, and we wouldn't want that now, would we? We will continue this tour and exercise next week. And now, after the overwhelming response and email concerning our poetry segment from the last show, and praise for Brandy Schwan and her reading, we have another. In fact, we have two this week, a short one read by myself called The Vampire from Brandy's next book entitled The Bible of Repetition and Wicked Hot, by, read by Brandy herself. I would like to thank The Midnight Syndicate and Douglas Bluefeather for providing some of the background music for this show, as well as Coyote Man for the haunting and chanting flute music behind my main segments. All of these artists have links on my webpage, theshamansbrew.com. And now, for your listening pleasure, I present the poetry of Brandy Schwan. 
It is perhaps the vampire to know a god with greater faith while cursing a high, invisible power for the disease it knows better than a church full of people clutching black books and symbolic trinkets. Those who reap by night and day, those who suck the blood from their neighbors and pray because they do. Oh, it is the vampire to be no such hypocrite while it feels what is unmerciful and endless. Forced to return to the womb without a night's rest, time and time again. Yes, yes, that demon vampire cries out, Hell is repetition, nine times nine times nine. Set aside for us 
from the lab now, but I, uh, I did conduct successful experiments last week with uh, human intention and my transdimensional transceiver, but I'm not ready to release the results until I conduct further experimentation. Therefore, I am trying something new this week to see how it works for you, the listeners, uh, since this really is your show, and I try to offer what you ask for and what I think uh, might best serve your needs. I have had uh, several emails asking about my personal friend and mentor, Dr. Carlos Castaneda, and uh, his work. Carlos changed the way we perceive the world forever in his 11 uh, best-selling books uh, concerning his apprenticeship with a Yaqui Indian named Don Juan. He was so influential to society that Time Magazine dubbed him the godfather of the New Age. Those of you who are not familiar with his work will now have the opportunity to hear the book that started the revolution in human consciousness, The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaqui Way of Knowledge. I'm going to present the first segment in a reading of this book starting tonight and continuing each week until the book is completed. This will give those that are not familiar with uh, these bestsellers a taste 
of my world and perhaps entice them to purchase more books and take the journey on their own. With that, I present the first segment of The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaqui Way of Knowledge by Dr. Carlos Castaneda. Audio Literature presents The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaqui Way of Knowledge by Carlos Castaneda, read by Peter Coyote. In the summer of 1960, while I was an anthropology student at the University of California, Los Angeles, I made several trips to the Southwest to collect information on the medicinal plants used by the Indians of the area. The events I describe here began during one of my trips. I was waiting in a border town for a Greyhound bus, talking with a friend who had been my guide and helper in the survey. Suddenly he leaned toward me and whispered that the man, a white-haired old Indian who was sitting in front of the window was very learned about plants, especially peyote. I asked my friend to introduce me to this man. My friend greeted him, then went over and shook his hand. After they had talked for a while, my friend signaled me to join them, but immediately left me alone with the old man, not even bothering to introduce us. He was not in the least embarrassed. I told him my name, and he said that he was called Juan, and that he was at my service, he used the Spanish polite form of address. We shook hands at my initiative and then remained silent for some time. It was not a strained silence, but a quietness, natural and relaxed on both sides. Though his dark face and neck were wrinkled showing his age, it struck me that his body was agile and muscular. I then told him that I was interested in obtaining information about medicinal plants. Although in truth I was almost totally ignorant about peyote, I found myself pretending that I knew a great deal and even suggesting that it might be to his advantage to talk with me. As I rattled on, he nodded slowly and looked at me, but said nothing. Finally, after what seemed a very long time, Don Juan got up and looked out of the window. His bus had come. He said goodbye and left the station. I was annoyed at having talked nonsense to him and at being seen through by those remarkable eyes, when my friend returned, he tried to console me for my failure to learn anything from Don Juan. He explained that the old man was often silent or noncommittal, but the disturbing effect of this first encounter was not so easily dispelled. I made a point of finding out where Don Juan lived and later visited him several times. On each visit, I tried to lead him to discuss peyote, but without success. We became nonetheless very good friends and my scientific investigation was forgotten or was at least redirected into channels that were worlds apart from my original intention. The friend who had introduced me to Don Juan explained later that the old man was not a native of Arizona where we met, but was a Yaqui Indian from Sonora, Mexico. At first, I saw Don Juan simply as a rather peculiar man who knew a great deal about peyote and who spoke Spanish remarkably well. But the people with whom he lived believed that he had some sort of secret knowledge, that he was a brujo. The Spanish word brujo means in English medicine man, curer, witch, sorcerer. It connotes essentially a person who has extraordinary and usually evil powers. 
I had known Don Juan for a whole year before he took me into his confidence. One day he explained that he possessed a certain knowledge that he had learned from a teacher, a benefactor, as he called him, who had directed him in a kind of apprenticeship. Don Juan had, in turn, chosen me to serve as his apprentice, but he warned me that I would have to make a very deep commitment and that the training was long and arduous. My notes on my first session with Don Juan are dated June 23, 1961. That was the occasion when the teachings began. I had seen him several times previously in the capacity of an observer only. At every opportunity, I had asked him to teach me about peyote. He ignored my request every time, but he never completely dismissed the subject, and I interpreted his hesitancy as a possibility that he might be inclined to talk about his knowledge with more coaxing. In this particular session, he made it obvious to me that he might consider my request, provided I possessed clarity of mind and purpose in reference to what I had asked him. Would you teach me about peyote, Don Juan? Why would you like to undertake such learning? I really would like to know about it. It is not just to want to know a good reason. No. You must search in your heart and find out why a young man like you wants to undertake such a task of learning. Well, why did you learn about it yourself, Don Juan? Why do you ask that? Well, maybe we both have the same reasons. I doubt that. I'm an Indian. We don't have the same paths. The only reason I have is that I, I want to learn about it, just to know. But I assure you, Don Juan, my intentions are not bad. I believe you. I've smoked you. I beg your pardon? It doesn't matter now. I know your intentions. Do you mean you saw through me? You could put it that way. Well, will you teach me then? No. Is it because I'm not an Indian? No. It's because you don't know your heart. What is important is that you know exactly why you want to involve yourself. Learning about mescalito is a very serious act. If you were an Indian, your desire alone would be sufficient. Very few Indians have such desire. Sunday, June 25th, 1961. I stayed with Don Juan all afternoon on Friday. I was going to leave about 7 p.m. We were sitting on the porch in front of his house, and I decided to ask him once more about the teaching. It was almost a routine question, and I expected him to refuse again. I asked him if there was a way in which he could accept just my desire to learn, as if I were an Indian. He took a long time to answer. I was compelled to stay because he seemed to be trying to decide something. Finally, he told me that there was a way, and proceeded to delineate a problem. He pointed out that I was very tired sitting on the floor, and that the proper thing to do was to find a spot, sitio, on the floor where I could sit without fatigue. I had been sitting with my knees up against my chest and my arms locked around my calves. When he said I was tired, I realized that my back ached and that I was quite exhausted. I waited for him to explain what he meant by a spot, but he made no overt attempt to elucidate the point. I thought that perhaps he meant that I should change positions, so I got up and sat closer to him. He protested my movement and clearly emphasized that a spot meant a place where a man could feel naturally happy and strong. He patted the place where he sat and said it was his own spot, adding that he had posed a riddle I had to solve by myself without any further deliberation. He got up and very sternly warned me that it might take me days to figure it out, but that if I did not solve the problem, I might as well leave 
because he would have nothing to say to me. He emphasized that he knew where my spot was and that therefore I could not lie to him. He said this was the only way he could accept my desire to learn about Mescalito as a valid reason. He added that nothing in his world was a gift and that whatever there was to learn had to be learned the hard way. He went around the house to the chaparral to urinate. He returned directly into his house through the back. I thought the assignment to find the alleged spot of happiness was his own way of dismissing me, but I got up and started to pace back and forth. I got tired of walking and sat down. After a few minutes, I sat somewhere else and then at another place until I had covered the whole floor in a semi-systematic fashion. I deliberately tried to feel differences between places, but I lacked the criteria for differentiation. I lay down on my back and put my hands under my head like a pillow. Then I rolled over and lay on my stomach for a while. I repeated this rolling process over the entire floor. For the first time, I thought I had stumbled upon a vague criterion. I felt warmer when I lay on my back. I rolled again, this time in the opposite direction, and again covered the length of the floor, lying face down on all the places where I had lain face up during my first rolling tour. I experienced the same warm and cold sensations depending on my position, but there was no difference between spots. Then an idea occurred to me which I thought to be brilliant. Don Juan's spot. I sat there and then lay, face down at first and later on my back. But the place was just like all the others. I stood up. I had had enough. I wanted to say goodbye to Don Juan, but I was embarrassed to wake him up. I looked at my watch. It was two o'clock in the morning. I had been rolling for six hours. At that moment, Don Juan came out and went around the house to the chaparral. He came back and stood at the door. I felt utterly dejected, and I wanted to say something nasty to him and leave. But I realized that it was not his fault, that it was my own choice to go through all that nonsense. I told him I had failed. I had been rolling on his floor like an idiot all night and still couldn't make any sense of his riddle. He laughed. He said that it did not surprise him because I had not proceeded correctly. I had not been using my eyes. Well, that was true, yet I was very sure he had said to feel the difference. I brought that point up, but he argued that one can feel with the eyes when the eyes are not looking right into things. As far as I was concerned, he said, I had no other means to solve this problem but to use all I had, my eyes. He went inside. I was certain that he had been watching me. I thought there was no other way for him to know that I had not been using my eyes. I began to roll again because that was the most comfortable procedure. This time, however, I rested my chin on my hands and looked at every detail. After an interval, the darkness around me changed. When I focused on the point directly in front of me, the whole peripheral area of my field of vision became brilliantly colored with a homogeneous greenish-yellow. The effect was startling. I kept my eyes fixed on the point in front of me and began to crawl sideways on my stomach, one foot at a time. Suddenly, at a point near the middle of the floor, I became aware of another change in hue. At a place to my right, still in the periphery of my field of vision, the greenish-yellow became intensely purple. I concentrated my attention on it. The purple faded into a pale but still brilliant color which remained steady for the time I kept my attention on it. I marked the place with my jacket. Perceiving the hues had been so startling that I was sure it was a criterion of some sort, and perhaps there were other changes to be detected. Anyway, it was too late to leave, so I sat down, stretched my legs back, and began all over again. During this round, I moved rapidly through each place, 
passing Don Juan's spot to the end of the floor and then turned around to cover the outer edge. When I reached the center, I realized that another change in coloration was taking place, again on the edge of my field of vision. The uniform chartreuse I was seeing all over the area turned at one spot to my right into a sharp verdigris. I took off one of my shoes and marked the point and kept on rolling until I had covered the floor in all possible directions. No other change of coloration took place. I came back to the point marked with my shoe and examined it. It was located five to six feet away from the spot marked by my jacket in a southeasterly direction. There was a large rock next to it. I lay down there for quite some time trying to find clues, looking at every detail, but I did not feel anything different. I decided to try the other spot. I quickly pivoted on my knees and was about to lie down on my jacket when I felt an unusual apprehension. It was more like a physical sensation of something actually pushing on my stomach. I jumped up and retreated in one movement. The hair on my neck pricked up. My legs had arched slightly. My trunk was bent forward and my arms stuck out in front of me rigidly with my fingers contracted like a claw. I took notice of my strange posture and my fright increased. I walked back involuntarily and sat down on the rock next to my shoe. From the rock, I slumped to the floor. I tried to figure out what had happened to cause me such a fright. I thought it must have been the fatigue I was experiencing. It was nearly daytime. I felt silly and embarrassed, yet I had no way to explain what had frightened me, nor had I figured out what Don Juan wanted. I decided to give it one last try. I got up and slowly approached the place marked by my jacket and again I felt the same apprehension. This time I made a strong effort to control myself. I sat down and then knelt in order to lie face down, but I could not lie in spite of my will. I put my hands on the floor in front of me. My breathing accelerated. My stomach was upset. I had a clear sensation of panic and fought not to run away. I thought Don Juan was perhaps watching me, Slowly, I crawled back to the other spot and propped my back against the rock. I wanted to rest for a while to organize my thoughts, but I fell asleep. I heard Don Juan talking and laughing above my head. I woke up. You found the spot, he said. You asked me to teach you about Mescalito, he said. I wanted to find out if you had enough backbone to meet him face to face. Mescalito's not something to make fun of. You must have command over your resources. Now I know I can take your desire alone as a good reason to learn. You really are going to teach me about peyote? I prefer to call him Mescalito. Do the same. Monday, August 7th, 1961. I arrived at Don Juan's house in Arizona about 7 o'clock on Friday night. Five other Indians were sitting with him on the porch of his house, I greeted him and sat waiting for them to say something. After a formal silence, one of the men got up, walked over to me and said, Buenos noches. I stood up and answered, Buenos noches. Then all the other men got up and came to me and we all mumbled Buenos noches and shook hands, either by barely touching one another's fingertips or by holding the hand for an instant and then dropping it quite abruptly. We all sat down again. They seemed to be rather shy, at a loss for words, although they all spoke Spanish. It must have been about half past seven when suddenly they all got up and walked toward the back of the house. Nobody had said a word for a long time. Don Juan signaled me to follow and we all got inside an old pickup truck parked there. I sat in the back with Don Juan and two younger men. 
There were no cushions or benches, and the metal floor was painfully hard, especially when we left the highway and got onto a dirt road. Don Juan whispered that we were going to the house of one of his friends who had seven mescalitos for me. We must have driven for at least an hour before we stopped in front of a small house. It was quite dark, and after the driver had turned off the headlights, I could make out only the vague contour of the building. A young woman, a Mexican, judging by her speech inflection, was yelling at a dog to make him stop barking. We got out of the truck and walked into the house. The men mumbled, buenos noches, as they went by her. She answered back and went on yelling at the dog. The room was large and was stacked up with a multitude of objects. A dim light from a very small electric bulb rendered the scene quite gloomy. There were quite a few chairs with broken legs and sagging seats leaning against the walls. Three of the men sat down on a couch, which was the largest single piece of furniture in the room. It was very old and had sagged down all the way to the floor. In the dim light, it seemed to be red and dirty. The rest of us sat in chairs. We sat in silence for a long time. One of the men suddenly got up and went into another room. He was perhaps in his fifties, tall, dark, and husky. He came back a moment later with a coffee jar. He opened the lid and handed the jar to me. Inside, there were seven odd-looking items. This is to be chewed. Esto se masca, Don Juan said in a whisper. I had not realized that he had sat next to me until he spoke. I looked at the other men, but no one was looking at me. They were talking among themselves in very low voices. This was a moment of acute indecision and fear. I felt almost unable to control myself. Don Juan urged me softly. Chew it. Chew it. Masca, masca. My hands were wet and my stomach contracted. The jar with the peyote buttons was on the floor by the chair. I bent over, took one at random, and put it in my mouth. It had a stale taste. I bit it in two and started to chew one of the pieces. I felt a strong, pungent bitterness. In a moment, my whole mouth was numb. At that moment, the owner of the house got up and invited everybody to go out to the porch. We went out and sat in the darkness. It was quite comfortable outside, and the host brought out a bottle of tequila. The men were seated in a row with their backs to the wall. I was at the extreme right of the line. Don Juan, who was next to me, placed the jar with the peyote buttons between my legs. Then he handed me the bottle, which was passed down the line, and told me to take some of the tequila to wash away the bitterness. The pattern was repeated six times. I remember having chewed six peyote buttons when the conversation became very lively. Although I could not distinguish what language was spoken, the topic of the conversation in which everybody participated was very interesting, and I attempted to listen carefully so that I could take part. But when I tried to speak, I realized I couldn't. The words shifted aimlessly about in my mind. I sat with my back propped against the wall and listened to what the men were saying. They were talking in Italian and repeated over and over one phrase about the stupidity of sharks. I thought it was a logical, coherent topic. I had told Don Juan earlier that the Colorado River in Arizona was called by the early Spaniards El Rio de los Tizones, the river of charred wood. And someone misspelled or misread Tizones, and the river was called El Rio de los Tiberones, the river of the sharks. I was sure they were discussing that story, yet it never occurred to me to think that none of them could speak Italian. Don Juan brought me a large saucepan. He placed it on the ground next to the wall. He also brought a little cup or can. 
He dipped it into the pan and handed it to me and said I could not drink, but should just freshen my mouth with it. The water looked strangely shiny, glossy like a thick varnish. I wanted to ask Don Juan about it, and laboriously I tried to voice my thoughts in English, but then I realized he did not speak English. I experienced a very confusing moment and became aware of the fact that although there was a clear thought in my mind, I could not speak. I drank. I looked for Don Juan, and as I turned my head, I noticed that my field of vision had diminished to a circular area in front of my eyes. This feeling was neither frightening nor discomforting, but quite to the contrary, it was a novelty. I could literally sweep the ground by focusing on one spot and then moving my head slowly in any direction. I raised my head slightly and saw a medium-sized black dog approaching. I saw him coming toward the water. The dog began to drink. I raised my hand to push him away from my water. I focused my pinpoint vision on the dog to carry on the movement, and suddenly I saw him become transparent. The water was a shiny, viscous liquid. I saw it going down the dog's throat into his body. I saw it flowing evenly through his entire length and then shooting out through each one of the hairs. I saw the iridescent fluid traveling along the length of each individual hair and then projecting out of the hairs to form a long, white, silky mane. At that moment, I had the sensation of intense convulsions, and in a matter of instants, a tunnel formed around me, very low and narrow, hard and strangely cold. It felt to the touch like a wall of solid tinfoil. I found I was sitting on the tunnel floor. I tried to stand up but hit my head on the metal roof and the tunnel compressed itself until it was suffocating me. I remember having to crawl toward a sort of round point where the tunnel ended. When I finally arrived, if I did, I had forgotten all about the dog, Don Juan and myself. I was exhausted. My clothes were soaked in a cold, sticky liquid. I rolled back and forth trying to find a position in which to rest, a position where my heart would not pound so hard. In one of those shifts, I saw the dog again. Every memory came back to me at once and suddenly all was clear in my mind. I turned around to look for Don Juan, but I could not distinguish anything or anyone. All I was capable of seeing was the dog becoming iridescent. An intense light radiated from his body. I saw again the water flowing through him, kindling him like a bonfire. I got to the water, sank my face in the pan, and drank with him. My hands were in front of me on the ground, and as I drank, I saw the fluid running through my veins, setting up hues of red and yellow and green. I drank more and more. I drank until I was all afire. I was all aglow. I drank until the fluid went out of my body through each pore and projected out like fibers of silk, and I, too, acquired a long, lustrous, iridescent mane. I looked at the dog, and his mane was like mine. A supreme happiness filled my whole body, and we ran together toward a sort of yellow warmth that came from some indefinite place, and there we played. We played and wrestled until I knew his wishes and he knew mine. We took turns manipulating each other in the fashion of a puppet show. I could make him move his legs by twisting my toes, and every time he nodded his head I felt an irresistible impulse to jump. But his most impish act was to make me scratch my head with my foot while I sat. He did it by flapping his ears from side to side. This action was to me utterly, unbearably funny. Such a touch of grace and irony, such mastery, I thought. The euphoria that possessed me was indescribable. I laughed until it was almost impossible to breathe. I had the clear sensation of not being able to open my eyes. 
I was looking through a tank of water. It was a long and very painful state filled with the anxiety of not being able to wake up and yet being awake. Then slowly the world became clear and in focus. My field of vision became again very round and ample, and with it came an ordinary conscious act, which was to turn around and look for that marvelous being. At this point I encountered the most difficult transition. The passage from my normal state had taken place almost without my realizing it. I was aware, my thoughts and feelings were a corollary of that awareness, and the passing was smooth and clear. But this second change, the awakening to serious, sober consciousness, was genuinely shocking. I had forgotten I was a man. The sadness of such an irreconcilable situation was so intense that I wept. Saturday, August 5th, 1961. Later that morning, after breakfast, the owner of the house, Don Juan, and I drove back to Don Juan's place. I was very tired, but I couldn't go to sleep in the truck. Only after the man had left did I fall asleep on the porch of Don Juan's house. When I woke up, it was dark. Don Juan had covered me up with a blanket. I looked for him, but he was not in the house. He came later with a pot of fried beans and a stack of tortillas. I was extremely hungry. After we had finished eating and were resting, he asked me to tell him all that had happened to me the night before. I related my experience in great detail and as accurately as possible. When I finished, he nodded his head and he said, I think you're fine. It is difficult for me to explain now how and why, but I think it went all right for you. Can you tell me now, Don Juan, how does peyote protect... He did not let me finish. Vigorously, he touched me on the shoulder. Don't you ever name him that way. You haven't seen enough of him yet to know him. How does mescalito protect people? He advises. He answers whatever questions you ask. But the mescalito is real? I mean, he's something you can see? He seemed to be baffled by my question. He looked at me with a sort of blank expression. What I meant to say is that mescalito... I heard what you said. Didn't you see him last night? I wanted to say that I saw only a dog, but I noticed his bewildered look. Well, then you think what I saw last night was him? He looked at me with contempt. He chuckled, shook his head as though he couldn't believe it, and in a very belligerent tone he added, A poco crees que era tu mamá? Don't tell me you believe it was your mama. The word mama was so incongruous that we both laughed for a long time. Then I realized he had fallen asleep and had not answered my question. This concludes this episode of The Shaman's Brew. Please join me again next week as I take you further into my world. This is Marcus Leder, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on, on the Jackalope Radio Network. Please visit my website, www.theshamansbrew.com, and let me know what you would like to hear in future shows. Thank you for joining me.